Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Tonight, terror continues. Hamas gunmen opened fire in Jerusalem. as the United States tries to dictate terms for restarting the war. The father of a fallen Israeli officer has choice words for President Biden. We're going to win this one, with you or without. He joins us tonight. Office space. My Marine carries that in. It has a code to blow up the world. President Biden can launch nukes at a moment's notice, but he can't get federal workers back in the office. Why we taxpayers keep paying people to stay at home. Missing on the trail. Where have you gone, Ron DeSantis? We look forward to be back in Iowa this weekend. How Nikki Haley stole all of his thunder. And college. Who needs college? I gotta go to college. I gotta. Uh, Danny, this is in Russia. Is this Russia? This is in Russia. Is it? Nah. I didn't think so. The big companies in America who would now love to hire Bluto. Seven years of college down the drain. Breaking news as we start with live pictures. 2 a.m. now in the West Bank. You can see things are relatively calm there. Once again, we have no idea if Hamas will release another round of hostages tomorrow to extend the ceasefire. News on that as it happens. We also don't know if Israel will restart its campaign to destroy Hamas. Come sunup today, Israel got another round of hostage releases. With that, we welcome you to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, moral clarity. Few issues require moral clarity like supporting Israel's right to defend itself and destroy Hamas. The ceasefire demanded by America's left has allowed Hamas time to rearm and regroup for the next fight. Hamas does not want peace. We know that. If for no other reason, then they keep telling us. The Hamas leader in Gaza today quoted as saying, the leaders of the occupation should know October 7th was just a rehearsal. It's not just attacks from Gaza. Two Hamas-affiliated gunmen opened fire at a Jerusalem bus stop today, killing six and injuring more than a dozen. Yet President Biden and his team continues to pressure Israel not to restart the war and say that Israel must change its tactics if they do. This attack took place while the Secretary of State of the United States was in Jerusalem 
And this is what Antony Blinken had to say just a few hours ago. The massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. So let's be very honest about why Blinken is saying that. It's not for Israel's benefit. Antony Blinken nor Joe Biden really care that much about the Palestinians. They certainly didn't care about the Palestinians for the past three years. They don't now. This is about Biden's domestic political survival, pure and simple. An Israeli-American father of a fallen Israeli defense soldier, a major, read an open letter to President Biden at his son's funeral Sunday. Stand back, Mr. President. Don't pressure us. Let us do what we know how to do and what we must do. Defeat evil. We're going to win this one with you or without. Israel isn't perfect. I lived there for four years as a foreign correspondent. But I learned that this is a battle of good and evil. Evil being Hamas, not the Palestinians as a group. But 75% of Palestinians support the October 7th attacks. That includes Hamas roasting babies in ovens. And it's Palestinians cheering the released Israeli hostages as Hamas hands them over to the Red Cross. It's Palestinian civilians throwing rocks and beating on the Red Cross cars as they take the hostages to safety. The father of the fallen Israeli officer said to defeat evil requires moral clarity, which happens to be the title of a new ad from presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. A president must have moral clarity and know the difference between good and evil. We have to leave behind the chaos and drama of the past and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Both Presidents Trump and Biden have massively failed the moral clarity test during their time in office. Biden caved over the pro-Hamas, pro-Israel divide in the Democratic Party. Trump was no better after the neo-Nazis carried tiki torches through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. How can we forget? Biden and Trump appear to be birds of a feather. They promise moral clarity, but when tested, they choose political survival. Who knows if Haley would be any different if she was president, but she is right. A president must have moral clarity. With us now, the doctor, Dr. Yehiel Leiter, whose son was killed earlier this month fighting in a tunnel in Gaza. It's good to see you, sir. We appreciate it. I'm sorry about your son. I've been reading a little bit about him and what he was as a soldier and a father. It's really um, impressive. Uh, But I want to talk about your speech. You filmed it a couple of weeks ago. And I'm wondering what you were seeing a couple of weeks ago that made you feel it necessary to speak at your son's funeral to the president of the United States. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Leland, and uh, thank you for your emphasis on moral clarity. That was basically my theme. Uh, I come from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was born and bred in Scranton, and so was the president. And the thought suddenly occurred to me that we have something in common. We both lost sons. So I appealed to the president because at the time, and it appears still to be the case, there's American pressure on uh, the prime minister, on our government, on our country, to uh, not persist in the destruction of Hamas. And I believe that that's an absence of moral clarity. You don't 
negotiate with ISIS. You destroy ISIS. That's what you did. That's what America did. And that's what Israel needs to do with Hamas. You don't negotiate with ISIS or Nazis. You just quoted the leader of Hamas who said that October 7th was a rehearsal. Well, what was that a rehearsal of? 1,200 people that were tortured, that were decapitated, that were incinerated, uh, just because they were Jews. So that's not something and someone with whom you can negotiate. Sometimes you just have to destroy evil with military means. We've talked a lot about that. And as I said, I, I, when I lived there, I realized that this was a battle of good and evil. Um, and being there teaches you that. Uh, I'm wondering what you think is lost on the American populace, because you're from Scranton, you understand the American psyche better than most Israelis. But at the same time, if it is so clear in your mind is an issue of moral clarity, what do you think it is about President Biden that you needed to speak to him so directly of, at all places, your son's funeral? Well, you know, I, I spend most of my time in academia and in think tanks. And um, I've come to understand that um, uh, we used to refer to postmodernism as a playful way of thinking. It's not playful. Postmodernism has not only confused good and evil, it has led to a situation where in our universities, almost across the board, evil and good have been uh, exchange and actually you have uh, you know useful idiots who are uh, teaching today in most of the universities who uh, certainly in liberal arts who actually define uh, evil as good you have people chanting you know from the river to the sea Palestine will be free that's not what Hamas is interested in Hamas is a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot People should educate themselves and learn from the Muslims and Arab thinkers what the Muslim Brotherhood is. They're talking about a caliphate across the globe. And after they finish with Israel, they're coming for you. They're coming for Europe yeah. and they're coming for the great the great Satan, the United States. We're just a little Satan. So really, uh, our fight is your fight. And that's the message that I sent to the president. I've heard that before. We're looking at some of the pictures of the hostages coming home right now. But I noticed a stethoscope around your son's neck. And at the same time, he was also a combat soldier. Uh, he was in the reserves, but obviously called up to active duty and then was fighting in Gaza. Uh, I've got probably 30 seconds left, but I just wanted to help for you to help our viewers understand uh, why at 38 years old, he would go back in as, a, as somebody who worked in the medical profession. He could have, he could have stayed and treated people in hospitals. What did, why do you think he felt the need to fight? My son spent 15 years in Shaldad, which is our equivalent of the Delta Force. He actually trained with the American Delta Force. And at 33, he decided to leave and study medicine. And he was about to start his rounds on October 8th. But when the war broke out, he went back into his reserve duty position and actually led the division that began the offensive, Israeli offensive against Hamas. He was at the point squadron of the team that first went into Beit Hanun from where they were firing missiles into our cities. I know Beth Hanun. Um, when you spoke about your son, chills went down my spine. I'm glad we got to, to share that. A remarkable young man, uh, both uh, in life and in death, and remembered well by his father. Thanks for being with us, sir. We appreciate it. We know you stayed up late to do this. We appreciate it. He was, he was also my best friend, Leland. So thank you for having me. Oh, boy. My dad's my best friend, too. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. 
We invite you to sign up for War Notes. You would have seen this story and read about our thoughts on moral clarity. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. You go to warnotes.com and subscribe. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the most important events of the day. It's literally how we put the show together, and you get to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media, at Leland Vittert on Instagram or Twitter. That's warnotes.com, and subscribe for free. Some of America's biggest companies now say you don't need a bachelor's degree. We're talking about IBM, Bank of America, Google, Walmart, Accenture. They say they're going to scrap the degree requirement. Suddenly, the roughly $40,000 in student debt doesn't make much sense anymore. Something flounder, perhaps, some of the other characters as well from Animal House would have appreciated. Mr. Dorfman. Hello. 0.2. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. (laughs) But there is something bigger here. Companies are finding college grads pampered and lacking initiative. This is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college. I get on the train at 7.30 and I don't get home till like 6.15 earliest. <laughs> I'm so upset. The nine to five schedule in general is crazy. I don't have time for anything and I'm like so stressed out. Wonder what she learned in college. Michael Gibson, author of Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University, joins us now. I feel like this TikToker uh, is, was music to your ears as you were watching it. Um, we've got a lot to unpack here. Uh, how much of this was universities bringing it upon themselves? Well, yeah, they've had a bad track record over the last 30, 40 years or so. I mean, you mentioned the debt per, per person, but I mean, in aggregate, $1.7 trillion in student debt. The Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's unconstitutional effort to forgive that debt. But what was interesting is no one went to the source of the problem, which was the universities. They are charging a ton of money for what is becoming increasingly clear as a dubious degree. Um, So that was one of the puzzling features of that episode. 1.7 trillion debt, you know, real in, in real terms, the cost of tuition has gone up more than 4X since 1980. And it's not clear that the, the education is getting better. Um, as your previous guest mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of universities have become more or less woke madrasas. They are indoctrination camps, especially in the humanities, sadly. So I think maybe these businesses are starting to wise up to the fact that what's more important is skills and, and not some piece of paper. I'm fascinated by a lot of parts of this. The book is Paper Belt on Fire. I'm just trying to understand what Paper Belt on Fire means. <laughs> okay, yeah. So just as the Rust Belt has come to define the uh, hollowed out industries of the Midwest, I think uh, over the last, again, 30, 40 years, we've seen a lot of institutions fail at living up to their stated purpose. Uh, You know, you look at any polls about how much people trust the government or institutions like universities, 
and it's just in precipitous decline. Why? Because they're not performing well. So to me, the paper belt represents this region from uh, Washington, D.C. to New York to Boston, where everything seems to be based on paper. It could be the government printing money on paper. It could be Harvard or MIT in Boston printing diplomas on paper. And just as you can't make a country wealthy by printing money, you can't make uh, stupid or, you know, you can't, you can't educate people just by yeah. printing diplomas either <laughs> no I mean, look it makes sense now that you explain it, it makes perfect sense I, I think about that tiktoker who was talking about their first 95 job after college and on and on and it got me thinking that at some point you went to college for skills but you also were supposed to have to learn how to work right you were supposed to have to learn how to work on deadlines and produce projects especially um in the sciences um how much has the lowering of standards at schools, forget sort of the wokeness or, or the ideology, but simply the lowering of standards mean that that imprimatur for employers of a diploma has, says that this person can deal with the rigors of, of deadlines and of hard work, also worthless? So college pays. Uh, I don't want to deny that. The question is why. And you put up that stat, like, what's the difference between average salaries? The question underneath that economists have been investigating. And what, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's some debate, but, the, you know, a growing consensus is emerging that, that that wage premium is not due to skill acquisition. It's due to proving that you are the type of person who can undertake a project at great expense and effort, four years, showing up on time, taking assignments, raising your hand to go to the bathroom, who knows what. But that signals that you're going to be a very good employee to some of these firms. Uh, so, you know, economists, I recommend Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. That's another that's a deep dive into some of the stats. So what yeah. I think is happening is that uh, these companies are waking up to this, is that you know, they have outsourced their uh, employment, uh, you know, finding new employees to universities. But I think they're finding that they're, they're missing a lot of talent out there. Yeah, missing a lot of talent and then getting a lot of talent that. It is like that woman. Um, hey, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, uh, for all the problems with America, and look, we've got a lot of problems, we remain the shining city on the hill. No wonder millions upon millions of people come here every year, many illegally. And no one can fault someone for trying to make a better life for their family. That said, you've heard over and over again from the Homeland Security chief that the border isn't open that the southern border is secure. Of course it's not. But it's also not Alejandro Mayorkas' fault. He's just doing and saying what he's told. Our News Nation crew caught this on camera at our southern border earlier today. Smugglers cutting a hole through the border wall to let a group of people in. Yeah, no Border Patrol anywhere around. They came back a couple of hours later, too, this time with a generator. Eventually Border Patrol came at some point. But then we saw along the group of illegal immigrants that had gotten through the wall, and we're going to show you this picture, a one-legged man with his walker coming through. There you go, with his walker. Again, he's risking his life to come to America. This isn't a comment on him, or certainly we make in no way light of his disability. But what better illustrates an open border? What image would better prove that the border is in fact open and that the border is totally unsecure than a one-legged man with a walker able to get in before Border Patrol could even show up. 
Coming up next, Ron DeSantis' campaign has neither momentum nor buzz. Can he get it back before Iowa? And Philadelphia's new approach to fighting crime that you have to hear, maybe even see to believe. Will it stop scenes like this or just leave the city of brotherly love, well, colder? We'll explain. Well, DeSantis is like a 10-0 and 0 team, okay? He's got a booming economy, and more people are moving there than any other state in the country. It's Florida that looks like the future. And Ron DeSantis, you know, he looks like a future president, doesn't he? DeSantis wins, and he has yeah. made a promise, and he's making good on the promise. If only that was some of the coverage of Ron DeSantis right now. In fact, that was some of the coverage before Florida Governor Ron DeSantis launched his presidential campaign. It's, well in terms of polling, largely been downhill from there. In fact, ahead of next week's debate, he's having some of the lowest poll numbers in his history, as you can see on the chart there. In February, before launch, there was 15 points between him and Donald Trump. Trump is in purple at the top, and then you have Ron DeSantis in green. Now at 14% and Trump at 62, he's nearly 50 points behind. Carly Atchison, national spokeswoman for DeSantis, joins us now from the first in the nation contest, Des Moines, Iowa. Good to see you. Thank you. All right. What's the plan between now and caucus day? Well, first, want to point out that tonight is a great opportunity. We're excited on Team DeSantis. Ron is, DeSantis is about to take the stage against oh, Gavin come Newsom. Oh, come on. You can't plug something on a different network, Carly. Come on. Uh, well, that's going to be a great debate, not just between the Florida model or the California model, uh, but more about two competing visions for the future of our country. Um, and that's a debate that uh, America deserves to have. Um, and so, but you asked about Iowa and the First in the Nation caucus. Um, as you mentioned, I'm here in Des Moines. Uh, a lot of momentum here on the ground. And so if you're looking at national polling, you're missing the picture. Ron DeSantis has secured a key endorsement from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. That's the first time in, since 1996 that a sitting governor has weighed in. Bob Vanderplatz has now said he's all in. He's the Iowa kingmaker. Uh, we also have 41 endorsements from state legislators. That's eight times as many as Nikki Haley and twice as many as Donald Trump. Um, so we're looking forward to January 15th. I've interviewed Bob Vanderplatz uh, about this issue. Uh, let me ask you this way. You just mentioned two people, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Do you all view this as a three-person race? Nope, not at all. We view it as a two-person race. And by the way, so does Donald Trump. He has spent over $30 million against Ron DeSantis, uh, has hardly spent a dime against Nikki Haley. And interestingly, Nikki Haley has spent millions of dollars against Ron DeSantis and zero dollars against Donald Trump. So everybody seems to be real united around Ron DeSantis. Why is that? That's because he is the biggest threat to this, uh, to everybody in this campaign. It's why they'll continue to spend millions of dollars against him. And you played some of the coverage since before Donald Trump dropped that $30 million in negative spending. Um, and yet we're still here. Again, a lot of momentum here on the ground. We have the best ground game, the uh, largest operation, six offices across the state of Iowa for 50 staffers. Okay, so we'll uh, nobody matches that. Look, you guys have you do have an impressive ground game in Iowa. And there was Ron DeSantis took spent a lot of time in Iowa over the summer. We were there uh, as well for the state fair. I would wonder, though, why in a state where retail politics is so important and the candidate spends so much time on the stump, if he is as good on the stump and as charismatic and as charming to Iowa voters, as you say, why? his poll numbers keep going down the more exposure Iowa voters get to him. 
Well, first of all, you're pointing to national polls, so not every poll is asking Iowa caucus goers what they think. But here's what I can tell you. Um, there's a lot of open minds here on the ground, and they come to events for Ron DeSantis. They go to events for Trump. They go to events for Nikki Haley. Uh, a lot of our, our people who come to our events come in. They're open-minded. They're not sure. They walk out uh, signing commit to caucus cards for Ron DeSantis. And spending time on the ground here matters. Uh, we're going to yeah. hit our 99th county, Jasper County, on Saturday. No other candidate is doing that. Um, and that means something to Iowans here. They want to see you. They want to meet you. And Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who's been spending time here in Iowa running a real campaign. Yeah, fair enough. It, time on the ground matters. Um, Carly, we'll see you on the trail. Stay warm. It gets awfully chilly in Iowa come December. Thank you. Thank you, Leland. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, you can watch that other debate on YouTube a couple days from now. News Nation is your home for the next Republican primary debate. Speaking of debates, Sirius XM is Megyn Kelly. News Nation's own Elizabeth Vargas will moderate the two-hour event in partnership with the Washington Free Beacon. Eliana Johnson there. It's happening at the University of Alabama one week from tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern. Set your DVRs. In Philadelphia, a new law makes wearing a ski mask in parks, schools, and on public transit punishable by a $250 fine. The ACLU warns it could limit free expression. It would also make it easier to identify and track the car thieves and looters who, of course, make videos like this possible from Philadelphia. Philadelphia City Council member Anthony Phillips authored the bill and joins us now. It's good to see you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, tell us what the idea behind this is. Leland, it's good to see you as well. Um, listen, I just heard you uh, talk about the ACLU. Hardworking residents in the city of Philadelphia made this bill possible. Nowhere, everywhere I went in the city, people literally said we need to be hard on crime and we need to find a way to get individuals who wear these ski masks to literally take them off. Um, we've seen not only robberies in our businesses, but we also see in public places, people are nervous and scared of individuals who are wearing these ski masks. Uh, what I'll tell you is that uh, we do not, uh, I don't I don't work or, or speak for the ACLU. I, I work, I speak for uh, hardworking residents in the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. And what I tell the ACLU is that they need to be uh, in these neighborhoods and listening to individuals uh, who are petrified of folks in these ski masks. Oh, I, I hear you. I spent some time in Philadelphia over the summer. Uh, I don't know if it's yeah. your district, but in, in downtown and drove drove out through some of the the various uh, tougher neighborhoods of Philadelphia. It was terrifying. Um, so I understand how people who are living there would feel really scared. What I'm trying to figure out, though, is if somebody's going to be committing crimes, if they're going to be robbing, they're going to be carjacking, they're going to be looting. Yep. Um, those are a lot bigger crimes than wearing a ski mask. Why is a fine against wearing a ski mask going to concern them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the things that we didn't want to do, and we had to work collectively with a large, you know, a different, a number of different views uh, in the city, in the city council, is that we didn't want to give people a record, uh, a hard record uh, for wearing a ski mask. What we want to do is use this as a mechanism to deter crime as opposed to giving a record for wearing a ski mask. Uh, the goal is, is to help people who see this as a, as a trend to understand that, hey, you can have civil liberties and have freedom to do things, but you, you don't have the right and freedom to infringe a upon others people's freedoms because at the end of the day ski masks are often associated with criminality in the city of philadelphia and the philadelphia yeah. police department needs our help with this yeah there's not a lot of people wearing ski masks uh who then are you know helping old ladies across the street just two things and, that don't go and, together 
Let me it ask you this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Been there for that. Yeah. Um, think about Larry Krasner, though, who's the district attorney, um, one yeah. of the softest on crime DAs in the country. If he was prosecuting these criminals, he was locking them up. He wasn't letting them out without without posting bail on and on and on. Would your law be necessary? And the flip side of that is if Larry Krasner is not going to prosecute these people anyway, do you think they're really going to be scared of a fine for wearing a ski mask? Well, let me tell you this. Uh, this law has come about every has come has come as a result of us not doing as much as we should. Uh, since the pandemic yeah. when it comes to crime. Um, and unfortunately, we've had leaders in the city of Philadelphia who have not made sure that crime is literally, you know, at a high, t- at, we're hard on crime and making sure that enforcement is at its high level. And so here we are. And so, you know, I had a, I had an old lady, a senior citizen tell me the other day, you know, Phillips, I sent you to city council to make sure neighborhoods are safe. I'm not, I'm not here uh, for you to talk about the ACLU. I'm here for you to make sure that I'm safe. And she's a, she's from a missionary Baptist church. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you're right. You know, we, we were, on top of things in our leadership way before the pandemic, before I got on council, it's my first year, um, we, there could have been some things that we could have done to prevent all this. Well, your first year, you're listening to your constituents. Uh, that's an important <laughs> thing. Councilman yeah. Phillips, we appreciate you being with us. We invite you back anytime, sir, all right? Thanks, Leland. I appreciate you. Let's do the yeah, work we of the appreciate, Lord. We, we, we appreciate you talking about this. Coming up next, the number of members of Congress calling for a sustained ceasefire in Gaza continues to grow, but there's a catch. And, well, it's led to some, shall we say, differences within the Democratic Party. Pro-Palestinian or pro-Hamas, depends on what you want to call them, protesters took over the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting last night. Of course, the demands for a ceasefire seem a little odd right now because there is a ceasefire in Gaza. Of course, that's not what this is exactly about, right? These these signs and these protesters. There's now not violence in Gaza. The Intercept makes it clear in an article as, quote, the word ceasefire gains currency in Congress. Some lawmakers are coupling their calls for peace in Gaza with conditions that cannot be met. For example, The Intercept criticizes members of Congress who call for a ceasefire conditional on Hamas putting down their arms and leaving the Gaza Strip. One of the congressmen The Intercept viewed is not pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian enough, Danny Davis of Illinois. Good to join us. Uh, Good to see you, sir. When you you saw the article, I'm guessing, what did you think about it? Well, I saw the article, but what I'm really pleased about is the fact that there is a humanitarian ceasefire or stoppage. I'm also very pleased to know the impact that President Biden and Secretary Binkley have had in terms of bringing it to this point and getting us to where we are. I also believe, though, that as long as people can stay at the table, as long as they can continue to interact, that it can be not only seven days, but it can be a month, it can be two months, that, that there is a solution to be found. So you, think, you believe that there's a solution for Gaza with Hamas still in power? Oh, no, I don't believe that. So I believe that there is a solution, but I don't believe that there is a solution based on terrorism. 
So how 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 are we going to have a solution without fighting with a terrorist organization that says they won't leave? Well, I think that there is negotiation and there may be fighting and there will be fighting. But I think the ceasefire that we've experienced gives us hope. It gives people like me hope, hope that there can be a reasonable solution. But it takes a lot of effort. There has to be discipline. What do you what do you make right now? And look, you've been in Congress for more than two decades. There was a time that the Democratic Party was lockstep in its support of Israel and its unquestioned support. And now there is a faction, a real faction within the Democratic Party uh, who does not does not believe that. I mean, you can call them pro-Hamas, you can call them Hamas enthusiasts, whatever you want to call them, but there's a real civil war there. There's a civil war, but most people that I know and work with believe that there can be a two-state solution, that there's enough room, there's enough opportunity, enough creativity for people to learn to live together in harmony. And it's not just in terms of what you write in a charter or an agreement, but it also has to be in the hearts of people. I, I, I totally understand that. I guess my question, though, is how do you have a two-state solution with an organization in Hamas who says that their sworn oath, declaration, and purpose is destroying Israel? How do you have the two-state solution without throwing them out of Gaza? I think you're going to have to throw them out. Okay. I, I, I don't think that there can be peace based on terrorism. I don't think it works that way. I, I spent four years in the Middle East. I can tell you it doesn't, <laughs> sir. Thank you very much. Thank we appreciate you. you being here. Thank you. Coming up next, why did Facebook censor our very own Chris Cuomo? He has the answer when we come back. Mercifully, COVID killed almost no kids. That was sort of the saving grace of COVID in so many ways. Yet now there is something really affecting kids. It's a mystery that has caused huge concern. And now we understand it's not only spreading in China, not only spreading in Europe, it's in Warren, Ohio, of all places. Take a listen. Breaking this noon, the Warren County Health Department is sounding the alarm about an outbreak of pediatric pneumonia. I think it's starting to take root here in the United States. I think it's taking root in Washington, D.C. Warren County is seeing an outbreak in pediatric pneumonia cases. But nobody knows what is causing, as you heard, an uptick in this respiratory illness among children. When you look at the pictures of people's lungs and then you look at the pictures of people being treated, it looks an awful lot like COVID. COVID pneumonia almost killed me, so I have some experience with this. The mysterious child pneumonia called white lung is spreading to children in the U.S. with cases up 25% from a week ago, infecting every 80 out of 100,000 kids. The virus has already spread from China to Europe to London, Paris, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, and now the United States. Hospitals are crowded trying to keep up with the cases. Almost like sounds like here we go again. These are pictures from China. Of course, the Chinese are lying about everything and won't tell us what's happening. Warren County, Ohio, has already seen 142 cases, and the number is expected to rise. For those of you looking at your phones or calendars, no, this is not 2021 all over again. It's case numbers once again in 2023. 
And in some places, people are again masking up to try and protect themselves. Take a look at this map where we're seeing cases of child pneumonia spiked in the United States in addition to Ohio. Massachusetts is now being hit by a wave of this strange disease. CDC officials say nothing is out of the ordinary. That was probably January of 2020 when it came to COVID. Do you remember that? Nothing to worry about because the World Health Organization said COVID wasn't transmissible from person to person. Yeah, the World Health Organization was covering up for China back then as well. According to county health officials, not only is this above the county average in Warren, Ohio, it also meets the Ohio Department of Health definition of an outbreak, an outbreak of something that we have no idea what it is or what's causing it. And when it comes to the CDC declaring nothing to see here over a mysterious respiratory illness, fool us once, shame on you. Fool us twice, shame on me. And keep this in mind when we think about what's happening here. An administration that loved talking about the pandemic and science and COVID and keeping us safe has been silent about this. And no one can quite figure out why. A lot more on this tomorrow with someone treating these cases to tell us what they know, what they don't, and what they'd love to know from the Chinese where this all started. Chris Cuomo last night got a hard lesson about Facebook. Evidently, Facebook has a third rail. Don't go near it as Chris found out with this clip. Do you believe that the United States and of course Israel and the other intermediaries have made a huge mistake negotiating with Hamas on equal footing about the hostages? Why? Well, it's it's not that they've made the mistake about negotiation. It's the exposure, and I wrote this in an op-ed that was published this morning about the fact that there's been such high profile acknowledgement that the U.S., Israel, and others are, quote, negotiating and making concessions. That was Chris's interview last night with a Navy SEAL commander who had helped run the U.S. hostage working group. They talked about Israel and the hostages. But when his team, Cuomo's team, posted to Facebook, it was quickly taken down. Chris is here with us. I've never interviewed, Chris, somebody who's been censored before. It must be to say you were saying something important and factual. Of... Of all the distinctions, I have gone within 24 hours from being censored on, I think it was two platforms, to uh, trending on another platform. You know, what does that tell you? Social media is wacky. And when people watch the clip, they're going to say, I don't get it. Why would this be censored? It shouldn't have been. This shows that AI ain't all that. And it's not people making these decisions. They set up Mm. algorithms that flag things. Maybe it's because uh, Brother O'Shea had a knife above his head. Uh, or maybe it was because he said the word Hamas or some I don't know what flagged it, but clearly something that's good enough for News Nation to be on TV shouldn't be censored by some BS social media platform. So it just shows that censorship is an active part of social media. Decisions are being made. Algorithms are being designed. Yeah, somebody, they are somebody, had to, so, somebody had to, though, some, somebody, right, had to program the algorithm, right? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, algorithms are still made for now. But uh, I I don't know that a human being made this call. It's unlikely. But that also sheds light on the problem uh, of how big a part this is of social media today. And, of course, I'm not in fear of being censored. I have a freaking TV show. I have a podcast. I'm, I'm not worried about being censored. But... These decisions are arbitrary. They're based on agendas that motivate the people who make the algorithms. And it's hurting us 
because it's weaponizing information that doesn't deserve the DAP. A lot of times, the things that the ideas I, that they don't want Chris, you to hear, never, you're better off Chris, debating we, it. We will never censor you, at least here you on just balance. Did, but I will tell way, you, you just but we off. are out of time. Yeah, you cut me off. We are out of time. Censorship. There you censor go. There you go. All censor right. it again. Twice. Two days. Yeah, say, I'm yeah, out of here. He, he, yeah, the guy, <laughs> twice in 24 hours. <laughs> See you at the top of the hour, buddy. Coming Thank up next, you. the federal government measures success by workers showing up half the time, specifically the workers we all pay. The fancy government math and what President Biden says he can do about it when we come back. carries that and has a code to blow up the world. That doesn't, this is not nuclear weapons, is it? President Biden, of course, can joke about starting World War III, but evidently he cannot get federal workers to come to the office. Take a look at this headline from Axios. Scoop inside the Biden White House aggressive back-to-office push. Hans Nichols with some great reporting. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zainz is holding up the Department of Veterans Affairs and U.S. Agency for International Development. Well, they are the first two to hit the benchmark of workers as the poster children of getting folks back to the office. Why? Because those agencies' workers spend five out of every 10 days in the office. For the Biden White House, spending five of 10 workdays in the office is a success. Here now, who is always man, always in the office, Democratic strategist Kurt Bardella. If, if the benchmark is five out of any of every 10 days, I wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> I mean, 50 percent, that's better that's than... That's not passing. I like, mean, I, I, do they get half pay? I, well, let's be very clear here. Just because you're not physically in the office uh-huh. doesn't mean you're not working. This is what I don't understand, okay? He's the commander-in-chief. Yes. Okay, he is the boss, right? Why doesn't he say, if he wants to be back in the office... Your job is now back in the office. We're ending work from home. Come back or you're fired. Because if they did that, there would be a mass exodus of the federal government. And that would be a problem? Yes, it would be. Because people still, (laughs) the federal government still does a lot of stuff that people need day in and day out. That's why when the government shuts down, that freaks everybody out on some level. A lot of the career civil service employees who have gotten used to the remote work life that many Americans have experienced in in, in the post-COVID world, they are not eager to go back to that. And I think their case is, listen... If you want us to go in full time now, like, who's going to help us watch our kids? Who's going to help us with the daycare? Who's going to help I, I us get, with I the get logistics? That, but, but at the same time, though, we the taxpayers are paying their salary, right? And if you work for any other normal company, they say uh, you're going to have to deal with your child care and everything else as you did before. If you don't want to come to the office, we're not paying you. Well, I think what we're seeing in the private sector, though, is there are a lot of, a lot of companies who have had to kind of adjust to, again— the workforce now knows what it's like to not have to be in the office from 9 to 5. That's, it's hard to unknow that. Right. That, that's true, though, for, like, fancy white-collar workers, right? They average federal salaries mm-hmm. over $100,000. They get great health care benefits. They do all, sure. get all these things. Conceivably, the bar, if you want that salary, should be a little higher. There's also $7 billion every year spent to lease and maintain office space. Right. Right. They. At some point, isn't there a responsibility on President Biden to say, 
come in? You really, you really think all these people are going to quit their cushy $115,000 a year jobs? No. Listen, I think that what we ought to be doing is have less office space. I think that we should be saying, you know what? We're not going to bring everybody back. And I think that this mentality that you need to be in the office 9 to 5 is so archaic and arcane and completely out of step for where most Americans actually are. Is it, oh, wait, Kurt, is it really most Americans, though? Is it most Americans or is it most people who are white collar, 11 paid holidays, paid vacation, health benefits, retirement package, travel opportunities, uh, make over $100,000 a year. People with less than $100,000 a year, most Americans, don't get to work from home. Right, but I think most Americans, if given the option, would. All right, there you go. Who can argue with that? Good to see you. You too, brother. All right. Chris Cuomo, he was 